0: Should we begin by doing an a cappella version of the Mockingbird podcast theme song? (laughs) It's
1: really good. Yeah. Praise the
2: Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) Who's going to pretend to be DZ? DZ. Or actually, it's RJ now, isn't it? Yeah, welcome to the mock- I'm from Connecticut, and I am uh, the whitest man on the planet.
1: Welcome to the Mocking Cats, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Ethan Richardson, your host for today. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-conspirators and wisecracks, Aaron Zimmerman and Ben Madison. The Mockingcast usually comes to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace, and its opposite, playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. This Friday, though, we're throwing in a curveball. In addition to our regularly scheduled programs, we're sneaking in a special episode to commemorate the release of the 11th issue of a magazine, The Humor Issue. I have had the great privilege of editing this beautiful beast, and today I'm speaking with some of our talented and hilarious and even totally disturbed writers, not just about what they've contributed to the magazine, but what their thoughts are on humor in general, what makes them laugh, who makes them laugh, and what puppets, wimples, snoods, and winobots have to do with love. So... Just to set this up, the first voices you're going to be hearing are Aaron and Ben. Both are ministers by trade, one in Texas, one in New Jersey. And if you sense any high drama, any tension on the line, just know they used to work together. Since then, they have become mortal enemies, quietly competing to build bigger and stronger congregations, empires over the other. Yes, they laugh a lot together, but don't be fooled. They hate each other. Oddly enough, Aaron and Ben are both funny people, and so they both wrote pieces in this magazine. Both were pieces about church, one of the institutions least likely to crack a joke, but also one most in need of jokes. Both Aaron and Ben asked their bosses, And their bishops and their loved ones to please stay far, far away from this recording. So if that's you, kindly run along. And after that, you're going to hear from Harrison Scott Key, author of The World's Largest Man, a hilarious low country memoir about his relationship with his redneck, ball throwing, gun shooting dad. The book joined the likes of Jon Stewart, Trevor Noah, David Sedaris and Christopher Buckley, when it won the Thurber Prize for American Humor Writing, an award Harrison says no one has ever heard of. His essay in our magazine is about winning that award and how every conversation he's had since then has been about, quote, how to write funny. So, of course, we had to know how do you write funny? going to hear my chat with Caroline Henley, who wrote an essay on the most demented television show ever allowed to air. And it aired on a station you may not have even known existed, MTV2. You may have never heard of Wonder in It was around for only two seasons, a kind of spoof of the typical Sesame Street children's variety puppet show. Except these puppets are kind of from hell. Caroline talks about the difficult work, and yes, even the good gospel work of dark humor. And that's all the background you need, besides having an actual magazine in hand. You can get it pretty easily online at magazine.mbird.com. You can also subscribe there for four issues, or you can even subscribe for ten issues, you can even order every single beautiful back issue in a box set. The world is your oyster. Magazine.inbird.com So, here we go. Buckle on in to the Mocking Giggle Cast. It will most likely be a bumpy, hilarious ride. We're glad to have you with us. Among those whom I like or admire, I can find no common denominator. And among those whom I love, I can. All of them. <laughs> the I think that means, Aaron, you don't love Ben. And Ben, you don't really love Aaron. Maybe you like each other, but you don't love each other. Because you don't make each other laugh.
2: I would say that I don't like like Aaron. Like if I was to slip him a note in class with a... Would you like me? Do you want to go out to lunch? Yes or no? I feel like he would check both boxes. Mm. So,
1: If this is true, that among those whom I like or admire, you can find no common denominator, but among those whom you love, you can. They make you laugh. Who
0: makes you laugh? Who do you love? John Mullaney. Who is John Mullaney? He's a comic. I don't know how I found him. I think it was... Um... Maybe I heard him on a podcast or something. Maybe it just was, you know, Netflix has about 5 million comedy specials. Just kind of picked him. And I was watching his special where he talks about Delta Airlines and getting, you know, just totally the runaround from an airline. And it just made me weep. He's my
2: guy right now. Everything he does. What about you, Ben? I can't convince my wife to sit down and watch like comedy specials with me. She just like hates them by their very nature. It doesn't make sense. There's a person talking on the stage. So I I literally cannot tell you the last one I've watched. So honestly, when I was thinking about it, the first thing that came to mind, and I admit that I'm very embarrassed by this, is Dane Cook. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like Dane Cook is the last guy where I bought an album and I listened to it from beginning to end and like I still just sort of laugh at his, like, observational, physical humor, right? He has this great one about when the cops show up outside, everyone goes outside to see it, right? Like, this is the nature of the beast. But he has this great line about, like, it doesn't matter what the weather is, everybody's cold. Everybody's rubbing their arms, right? Like, everybody needs a blanket. It could be the dead of summer, 100 degrees outside, and everyone is still just freezing cold. Um <laughs> I feel embarrassed that I'm going to admit that, but yeah, I still like Dane Cook. Millions of people also millions of people do.
0: Used to, I feel like (laughs) used to is probably. Yeah, I don't know what he's doing now. Is he still touring? And
2: he's dead. Oh, that's that's not true. I don't think he. Yeah, I
0: don't think he's dead. Ethan, I had a thing, and I don't know how this happened. As a kid, uh, I got exposed to Robin Williams. Like we had a VHS tape that I just watched all the time, like wore it out. I mean, I can always go back to him and he just kills me. And I think that for good or ill shaped a lot of my uh, sense of humor.
1: Yeah. So what is it? I mean, like for you guys, what's the love language? What makes some people funny and other people not funny? for you?
0: I think it's a lot of saying what is true, but nobody has the courage to say saying things that you're not supposed to say. I mean, I think they're the major pressure release valve on, what we are all feeling all the time. You know, we all are under these really sometimes hard to navigate social rules. What you can say, what you can't, how you're supposed to interact with people. We're all trying to play by the rules and be polite, except for Ben, who is like a bull in a China shop and just says the first thing that comes to mind. It's really inappropriate. Yeah. Early on in Ben's ministry at St. Albans, I had to tell him, you can't say crap in Sunday school because because of the children, Ben. Think of the children. (laughs) But anyways, what it does for me is it's like, oh my gosh, somebody's finally saying the truth. Somebody's finally talking about what I'm thinking all day long, but can't actually say. I mean, I do feel like there's like a little snarky comedian. It's like devil and angel on the shoulders. For me, it's like John Mulaney and Sam Kinison. I don't know. There's like comedians on my shoulders, kind of wisecracking. This is going to ruin my pastoral ministry if anybody listens to this. But, you know, just saying... Funny things
2: about the situations I'm in, but you can't say any of that stuff out loud. This is why I don't tweet. This is why I've stopped <laughs> tweeting, because there's this force that takes control of my hands when I want to respond to someone. And it's usually just the funniest, but simultaneously the meanest possible thing I can say at that moment. Right. It's <laughs> it's it's the, it's this force that exists within me. But for me, I think the thing about laughing, the thing about humor is the relational aspect of it. Right. Like I always think about what laughter does, what jokes do is they bring you into this like secret club that you're not, you know, that other people aren't a part of. I think about sitting with my friends at meetings or next to my wife at something that we don't really want to be at. She'll lean over next to me and she'll make a snarky comment and it'll be hilarious. Right. And is it hilarious if anyone else heard it? No, they'd probably think, wow, that's really mean or, you know, very judgmental or whatever it is. But in that moment, the our connection—we're on the same wavelength—and that which is not good suddenly is.
1: And uh, you guys kind of hit on this in your articles that, like, that is kind of why it seems so absent, but also so needed in like a religious context or in like a church context. Because I mean, even if you have a joke teller up front, he's not speaking the same language as the person uh, sitting in the pew. Or he thinks this is a really serious
0: time and they're just not on the same wavelengths. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I think when you're preaching, when there are some preachers who will get up there and they have their sermon in front of them, they will start it, they will continue it, and they will end it. And sometimes it seems like with very little regard to what the congregation slash audience is doing, what humor forces you to do, if you're going to try to, use some of that to lighten the sermon or to engage the listeners it's instant feedback whether the joke lands or whether it doesn't and when it lands it's great because then you realize aha here we are we're doing something together this is not a one-way thing of me talking to you this is something we're doing together this is a shared experience and not only do i hope you congregation are paying attention to me preacher I, preacher, am also aware of you. And I think that sends a pretty good signal. And I think one of the things that I love, and I think you see some of this, as I mentioned in Robin Williams, but I think Jim Gaffigan does it really well. He will, in another voice, offer commentary on his own comedy. He gives voice to the people in the audience that don't get it or are offended or who don't like it, which to me shows that he's paying attention to what he's saying and realizing that it may not be for everyone or people may not get it. And I think that can be a valuable little thing for preachers to incorporate in some way or any communicator, honestly, just to be aware, you know, is your audience, what are they thinking? Are they getting any of this? It forces you to be aware of where they maybe are coming from, which is why I think Ben's point is right, that comedy is something that forms a
2: bond between the joke teller and the joke hearer. I'm really bad at being funny, like intentionally funny. Like if I plan out jokes, I'll usually get a couple yucks, right? But it's not like, it's not like when I'm just freewheeling, just saying whatever I want right it's like a different sort of laughter um and like w- with the piece I wrote for the for the uh for the eleventh edition, I sort of realized while I was writing it that the funniest moments in my life are the ones where I cannot see in the moment that it's hilarious right is actually when I take myself too seriously and when I think I'm somewhere where I'm not, right? Or, and it happens in the preaching too. When I think what I have to say is so important, right? It's in those moments where you pull the curtain back and you realize, oh my gosh, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm doing. And all of this is a joke. Someone told
1: me once that like, no one's going to want to hear your story if you are the hero of your story. And humor is like the epitome of that sort of truism. Like the joke, almost always, if it's going to be a good joke, has to be
0: to some extent on you, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things why I think people like comics like Richard Klein or you know Louis C.K. when he was still active and around. They talked about the despair of their lives in a really honest way. And that's the thing, to be able to realize you're not alone in your mess and, and all that sort of stuff. I will say one of the funniest moments in church services is when we call the kids down forward for the uh like we tell we say a little prayer for them maybe talk a little bit about the gospel reading for the day and then we send them out to children's chapel they come back uh for communion but they're out out of there for the sermon but there's a little dialogue that happens you know if it's Palm Sunday we may talk about who's who's ever seen a donkey uh um if it's uh, good Friday it's like uh, has anyone ever you know nailed their hand to a piece of wood just kidding that's never Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) That's the thing. Uh, Humor is about saying the thing you're not supposed to say. Anyways, my point is with the kids, when they come forward, they are completely unaware, some of them, that they're in church and supposed to behave. So they just say like, whatever comes to mind, they'll fight over who gets to carry the little children's processional cross, little sinners, you know, because they always, I want to do it. I want to carry the cross and not out of Christian humility. It's like, I want to be the number one. And, uh, and they'll take it and run. It's a really mm-hmm. risky moment, but it is the spontaneity. And it's often the funniest thing that happens the entire morning because the kids are, you know, Jesus said, the, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Like it's the, it's the little ones with that spontaneity. And I think there is a lot of grace there because if you say what's actually on your mind, that means you're not afraid. Most of us are afraid all the time, which is another way of saying we're under the law. And so when a comedian says what we're thinking, but don't feel allowed to say, there's kind of an implicit message of grace. Like, oh my gosh, maybe I am allowed to say what I'm thinking. Maybe I am allowed to be honest and to be free a little bit.
1: So with that being said, Aaron, and you two, Ben, like, can you think of times in church, times where either you've laughed the hardest and in, in like inappropriate moments, like religious moments that you're, you're not supposed to laugh, or times when you have done something that has made other people laugh and sort of
2: I remember at a church service when I was young, they decided to do something fun for Holy Week because we always did like a Good Friday and they were Presbyterian. So there's a lot of suffering and wrath and all that stuff. Uh, But the night before, on Maundy Thursday, we're, we're sitting in a darkened church. There's a Christian rock band playing in the background. Some phenomenal 90s Christian music, contemporary that is. And we all have these handheld candles, right? Like the ones they give out for Christmas Eve. Well, they they decide that the best decision to do is to make this like really symbolic image is to put all of the candles in this plywood candle holder in the center (laughs) uh, of the church. (laughs) So we're all individually walking up, putting these candles in, remembering the light of Christ that's about to be extinguished on Good Friday And we're like three rows from the front. My dad's in the worship band. My mom's doing who knows what. Uh, We're completely unsupervised. And uh, suddenly the back of the candle holder bursts into flames. (laughs) And it's plywood. So that sucker goes up like this, right? And it starts to (laughs) just like smoke <laughs> and all of the adults are losing it and all of the kids are just dying because you know we're trying to make this really holy point about maundy thursday and instead what we did is almost got ourselves a new church by burning it down so you know it's all about uh you know liturgy it's why you know liturgy is dangerous folks Be careful especially with the <laughs> candles i think
0: so that reminds me I'll tell I'll tell you my story. It involves Ben Madison in a good way, but mine is a moment with Ben, and we were getting ready before church, and we were in the little sacristy right before I think like the <laughs> seven thirty service. So it's like early in the morning, and maybe I we I just watched Princess Bride with my kids or something. He was thinking about that bishop, you know, Mawed, his what wings us, to Gavah, to- You were actually you were making fun of me.
2: I just oh, like to say I- that this story starts because Aaron Zimmerman makes fun of me because I have difficulty saying. Passive.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Peace passeth all understanding. Is the, is the, is so the hard. So also, hard. The, there's a line in the right one, Eucharist where you have to say innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. And it's like seventeen syllables in two seconds, and it's really hard for a lot of people. So just watch your clergy as they do it. Heckle if they mess it up. So but imagine like what if one of us actually had like a lisp or something like this? And so we started like rehearsing the but liturgy. With like the like the priest and uh or the bishop in Prince of Pride. So it's like, you know, when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent your
2: son Jesus Christ. You know. And I'm probably not gonna say that <laughs> if you were gonna subscribe. It is meet and right in our bounded duty that we stood at all times and all places. Give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, almighty, everlasting <laughs> God. For you and your mercy sent your only son Jesus Christ and suffered death upon the cross for our yeah, redemption. So- and made thereby his one sacrifice for himself a full, complete, and perfect oblation, <laughs> to and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Guys, I just want everyone to know Aaron's fine. losing it. They're not. They're not at all.
0: <laughs> and, uh, and, but Ben and I... <laughs> We're we, bad people. We bad just people. lost it. <laughs> <laughs> we had to kind of pull ourselves together and get some composure before we went out there for the divine service. Uh, and I just, <laughs> But I was crying. I mean, it was just... You just Going, so there's this wonderful thing about laughter is once Buff. the little thing starts and it just kind of snowballs, and then you have an avalanche, and, and oh. it's just really hard to pull it together
2: by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy <laughs> Spirit, all honor yours now and forever. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, we're all getting fired,
1: yeah, we're all fired. This will not be passed on to your bosses.
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because
2: mine's a monster.
0: This call is
3: being recorded.
1: All right, I, I just hit the record button, so you'll hear from that nice lady.
3: Oh, she already talked to me. She already told me what's
1: <laughs> happening. How's it going, man?
3: It is amazing.
1: Hey, I was going to ask, did you have a passage in mind that you would want to read from World's Largest Man?
3: Uh, so much. I could read. Yeah. Um Let me see here. Oh, gosh. Stupid. Okay. So here's a little, here's a short section early in the book. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, but Pop did not like it there. It was too progressive. The public schools were too clean. The hospitals were too well-equipped. Sure, they had jobs there, but they also had sidewalks, for God's sakes. Pop was a country boy and did not know what to think about sidewalks. And God Almighty, all the boys did was ride bikes and play video games and sit around getting sissified. If you wanted to toughen up your kid, teach him about knives and woods and whatnot, your only resource was the God dang Boy Scouts. Pop especially hated the Boy Scouts. Why they got to make them boys wear them damn neckerchiefs, he said. It's sissy enough as it is. I mean, a pine box derby. I make them little boys play with toys and play camp out in the middle of the city and then go and make them wear a dang lady scarf. It ain't right. You're too old for such silliness as that. I was six. So this, the, sad, the sad moment in that <laughs> line is I was six, you know? Like,
1: yeah.
3: It's not, I mean, nothing else is, it's not terribly, it's not a, this is not a sad passage, right? But, there, but there's sadness in that because when I say I was six, the reason we laugh is you picture this tiny little child. You picture this big man who's complaining about the Boy Scouts. And you, and you sort of get to conjure this image of, you know, a 13-year-old boy who's on the cusp of manhood who wants to just play, you know, play with his friends and play dress up at Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts or whatever they call it. And then when you realize, that, like, in this, as my father is saying this, I'm this little child just blinking at my father like the little like the little kitten in Bugs Bunny who gets carried <laughs> around by the by the bulldog, you know. You just picture this, and it's so sad. And we laugh because we know it turns out okay because here I am reading the story, and it's funny, so I appear to be emotionally healthy, you know, a little bit. But we laugh because it's sad because when you imagine this big, domineering father complaining about something, about what the, a little boy wants to do, and you realize, oh, he's a little six-year-old boy. He, he's a baby still. And, that, and, and so the sadness – and so it, in this book, as you move through it, the sadness hits deeper and deeper chords. So that's early in the book, right? So yeah. we're not we're – not, like you don't, hear, you don't read that and go, oh, my gosh. You read it and you laugh. It's very lighthearted. Right. But as the book moves on and as I get older and as the stakes get higher, those moments get a little deeper and a little deeper. And you really could argue it just throughout the entire book until the very end – when the comedy, when there's comedy at, a, at death, when people are dying, and and so and it, do, it doesn't get any deeper than that, it doesn't get any deeper than death. So a little later in the book, we've got another short passage uh, where you see the this, this same theme of like not meeting up or not measuring up to a father's standards. Um, this is about uh, a third of the way through the book. My father had been a beast on the grass, a true wonder in athletic contests. It was generally agreed that he would eventually play football for Coach Vaught at Ole Miss or at the very least wrestle Bears for a living. Then during a fateful high school game versus Hernando, he broke one of the more necessary bones in his leg, and just like that, the dream died. And so since he would not be making any game-saving sacks or game-winning scores, he set himself to making something even better – a little man just like him who might fill those cleats and carry the mantle and live the unlived dream. No son of his would have a choice in the matter. The gravity and density of Pop's DNA would be too much to ignore. It took him three marriages, but finally he got him a boy. Hot damn, Pop said that long ago day. He was excited because he'd seen a pecker. He devoted the next 18 years of his life to raising up the little thing attached to the pecker. The little thing, of course, was me. It'll make a man out of you, he was always saying, like the time he told me to saw a deer in half. He handed me a rusty bone saw and told me to run it through the dead thing's pelvis. It'll make a man out of you, boy, he said, handing me the saw. And don't be sawing through his nuts, neither. This is advice I've taken everywhere with me. Don't be sawing through an animal's nuts. When I talk to my students about using pain, you know, like when I would, I would, t- I told jokes like the ones I just read. I told funny stories like that when I was 15 and when I was 25, but I didn't realize what pain was at the heart of them. I, to me, that was just my world. My world was my father is a very strange person and very different from me. And I love him and I don't know how to make sense of it. So I'm going to make a joke about it. And the process of writing, it's not losing that joke. The jokes, man, the jokes were always there. The, the comedy was always there. But I never knew what gave it power. And if you want to write this stuff, I mean, if you, you can talk. I mean, there are stand-up comedians who have no self-awareness of what this stuff means or guys who are funny at a bar or in an improv group or just funny at a cocktail party. But if you want to write it and want to really know – like why it's funny and why people respond to it, then you have, that's that's when you go to the pain and the suffering and really think about it and, and go, oh my gosh, this stuff is funny because I sort of secretly hate my father and I think maybe he secretly hates me because we're so different and we don't want to hate each other. And that's not funny, that's sad, that's right. pain, that's sin. And so recognizing that that's the thing that powers the comedy, you then have to, Keep that in mind and yet write funny. And it's very easy to lose the comedy once you're aware of what gives it power. That's the hard part in my, mm. in my experience. There's a chapter that I read uh, at a, an event a couple years ago about um, the, the whippings that I would get as a boy, which many people who read that call that child abuse. Mm. and I I was aware of that, and I knew that the child abuse chapter, just like the the racism chapter that really focuses on race uh, on a baseball team that I was on, I knew those chapters would be really hard, and it would be really hard to get people to laugh, and so the challenge there was how do I choreograph the material to keep people from cringing or from feeling sorry for characters? How do I keep them in the right place to laugh at? That was the real challenge of the whole book, and one of my most intellectually enjoyable parts of of the writing process, I th- actually saved those two chap, the three chapters I wrote last were um, the chapter where my father dies, the chapter um, where I use the N word a lot, and racism is a is a big part of that chapter, and then the chapter where uh, I get hit by my father a lot. Mm. And I saved those for last because I knew that they were serious and I knew that the reader was, was going to be suspicious of anything that was too silly in dealing with those topics. And so the real process became like, how do I start? I mean, if I started off with my father is a racist, um, then I think I might lose the audience. Uh, if I started off with my father abused me and I'm not sure how I feel about it. For the rest of that chapter, I think I've, lo- I've probably lost that reader. I can't start with that. And so if I if so I've got to ease us into it and I've got to ease us into it in a way that says, Hey reader, I turned out okay, see, because I can make a funny joke about it. And then once I've got them realizing that I've turned out okay, I can then modulate the tone and go deeper and they're with me, right? I've earned their you know, through ethos, so I've earned their trust and they and they and they're with me. But that's a really I mean, there's so much choreography to writing humor, um, and there was a lot of moving pieces and note cards around for those chapters to figure out how I could get keep people on my side or on the side of the story and on the side of comedy, even though terrible things were happening. I mean, I, maybe the funniest the funniest book. I mean, if you want to like write funny, you should definitely like read Job. The Book of Job is a pretty funny book, and it has been turned into you know a comedy by. Neil Simon you know turned it into a comedy Mm. Um, but with that said that's why talking about writing humor is so weird because you come at it from so many different angles and the writer who writes it has to go through so many stages of development you have to learn your craft you have to learn who you are you have to learn how to write a, a funny line you have to learn why language is Funny and certain words are funny, and then you have to figure out why things are funny. I mean, it's there's it's so layered, it's so crazy, and it it took me so long to even do it poorly. I think it's it's probably dangerous to talk too much about sort of how you know faith or theology or anything on that spectrum leads to humor or vice versa. Um, I think it's I think humor uh, is much more fundamental than theology. I think it's it's like music. Um, you know, real pagans can listen to, you know, Mozart's, you know, uh, or, you could, or the, the Ninth Symphony. You can listen to that. You don't have to believe in a god or even believe in any objective truth to be moved by the Ninth Symphony. Um, and so, you know, on one hand, I don't really like talking about that, the connection. I mean, I know there's a connection for me but I don't think that faith naturally leads you to some sort of more authentic humor or that authentic humor leads you to faith. I mean, some of the biggest, you know, pagan, you know, shitheads that I know are the funniest people that I know too. Right. Uh, it's also like, you know, I mean, education doesn't also, you know, education doesn't make you morally ba- morally, uh, thoughtful and complex person, you know I mean? The, there were more PhDs in Germany you know, at the time of the rise of the Nazis than any other country in the world. Uh, a lot of education didn't make Germany a, a more moral nation in that moment, just like comedy doesn't make you a more moral person. I do think comedy is by nature, it's a moral uh, hermeneutic. It's a, that, that you laugh because things don't seem right. Mm -hmm. That whenever people are laughing, it's because something's wrong. And if something's wrong, that means there must be a right. But it's not an evangelical tool. I will say this, that I believe that ultimately all sadness comes from sin and all laughter comes from grace. And I don't talk about that to too many audiences. But I really believe that if you look at the great comic heroes of literature from Shakespeare to George Costanza... You know, comic heroes generally are pretty despicable people. And in mean, George Costanza, we've all been George Costanza. We've all behaved that way. We've all been like Michael Scott. We've all lied and tried to cover up things. I mean, in comedy, every hero is George Costanza. Every hero is a liar. We are being fake. We are pretending to be something we're not. We are puffing ourselves up. Sometimes there's a good reason. Maybe our long lost mother is dying of cancer on floor five of the hospital and they're not letting us in. So we steal a doctor's coat and a clipboard and we bluff our way to get up to that floor. So we're still a liar, right? We're still lying. And technically, according to a lot of people in the world, we are sinning. We are lying and deceiving to do a thing. But in all comedy, the hero is a fake and a phony and is lying. And what happens, you know, at the end of all great comedy, all that lying is forgiven. You know, the, the tragic hero, the Hamlets and the, uh, the Romeos and the Julietts, the Willie Lomans, are really trying hard to be good people. They are really trying hard. I mean, we all remember that from English class, right, in high school, that, the, you know, the tragic hero has one tiny fault that fails him but otherwise, he's a noble person. He's trying, you know, Willie Loman is trying to be a family man and do the right thing. And no matter what, like one little fault on the, on the part of the tragic hero, and they're felled, and they're, and they're condemned, and they die. But the comic hero is a liar and a cheater and a phony and a fake, and we forgive it all at the end because that's who we are because we're that way and it's all forgiven even though they're despicable people and that's what grace is i mean no matter how terrible you are there's a happy ending and so i firmly believe that the idea of salvation and the idea of the free gift of grace is tied very much to how we treat comic characters and so i think that also gives the writer a lot of license to really let himself if it's a memoir or a or to let the main character really be a total shithead because Mm. the audience forgives that because that's who we are too.
1: a piece on wonder shows in the magazine.
4: So yes, you graciously allowed me to write a long piece about an old uh, children's TV programming parody show that was on MTV2, and frankly I'm really surprised that you let me, because uh, <laughs> not only is it the darkest show that's ever Grace Cable, but it's also incredibly crass.
1: So, for the uninitiated, you just said it's sort of like a parody of a children's like variety show. It's kind of like like an evil um like, demented Sesame Street. What? So what's going on? What's the show all about?
4: So originally it was called Kids Show, and they were shopping around, and it was supposed to be for USA. The executives nixed it. So that they added a little disclaimer at the beginning of the show, which is a sketch show. It's puppetry, weird cartoons. It's fake commercials with stock footage. And they have these live-action interviews with, you know, little 8-year-olds on the streets of New York City. They would run this disclaimer at the beginning of every show. It says, Wonder Shows and contains offensive, despicable content that is too controversial and too awesome for actual children. If you allow a child <laughs> to watch this show, you are a bad parent or guardian. If I were to think about what is the funniest show to ever air, um, it would be Wonder Showsen. And, and it's super dark. Like, just some examples of some of those sketches is, you know, these eight-year-olds going up to people on Wall Street and asking questions like, "Who did you exploit today?" Or there's Wino Bot, which is it's a cartoon that's kind of like RoboCop, but they accidentally transform a Wino into RoboCop instead of a cop into RoboCop. Then he goes on to like drunkenly fight crime, and his kind of his body kind of falls apart in the process. But my absolute favorite is Clarence, who's a blue puppet looks like Grover. And he's voiced by Vernon Chapman, who's the voice of Towley on South Park. He's, He's one of the creators of the show. And he goes up to people in New York City parks. He actually films it in Stuyvesant Park, which is right across the street from my parish, St. Calvary, St. George's. And he asks these jaded New Yorkers things like, will you accept Jesus? And can you tell the kids why it's important to be patient? And then he just kind of interrupts them every time they try to answer him and these guys like everyone that they hate interviews just absolutely loses it so when i got married at saint george's a couple years ago i um we took all our wedding shots around where clarence filmed these poor guys all around that park uh and there's just <laughs> it was just like a ton of religious and jesus references and all these sketches it's almost like they're obsessed with upending religion which we talked a little bit about in the article
2: Yeah,
1: you mentioned one scene during the... Is it called Beat Kids?
4: It's called Beat Kids because they are kids on the beat.
1: Yeah, right. And so there's one that you wrote about that I just had to look up because one kid reporter is at a racetrack and he's sitting next to an older gentleman who looks like he's been there, you know, every day for a long time. And he says, can I do an impression of you? And he just says... Gamble, 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 die. <laughs> and,
4: and the poor guy has to respond to this cute kid. So he's like, yeah, I guess I guess I do have kind of a bad habit. <laughs> Which makes it so great because it's like people end up being so earnest in responding to these weird like puppets or, or kids asking them these strange deep questions.
1: Okay, so, so tell us the, the game you want to play.
4: Okay, one of my other favorite podcasts, it's called The Tarfu Report. And they do this little game where they quote from the most recent op-eds and quiz each other on the source. So, like, David Brooks or, like, whoever. So I thought we could play today quotes from the TV show from 2005 2006, Wonder Shows in versus quotes from the esteemed, famous Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard.
1: All right, let's do it. All right,
4: so... Wonder Chosen versus Kierkegaard. I'm going to read a quote, and I want you, Ethan, to name that source. And I'm hoping in the process to showcase there's some real deep issues that are in this show about evil puppets. Okay. So, Ethan, you ready? Yep. Okay, Wonder Chosen or Kierkegaard. Love is a neurochemical con job.
1: I'm going to say only because con job sounds sort of 21st century or 20th century wonder shows in
4: that is correct it was said by a five-year-old after being asked what is love (laughs) Um. okay next quote i wash my hands i follow the rules i am good
1: i'm good um yeah i'm gonna say kierkegaard
4: I'm sorry, that was, that was said by another child on the show, Wonder Shows in.
1: Mm. Tyler,
4: he washes his hands, follows the rules. He is good. He's proving himself in some way. All human beings are boring. Boredom is the root of all evil.
1: Man, that's tough. Uh, Kierkegaard.
4: Very good. Yes. Your Will McDavid would be crowd. He wrote yes. a lot of pieces about Kierkegaard. Next quote, Wonder Shows in, or Kierkegaard. Happiness is falling asleep in the glower of an animal, and waking up in the gaze of a beast.
1: Waking up in the gaze of what?
4: In the gaze of a beast.
1: I just don't think it's that possible that, like, the parody of a children's show could be that poetic. So I'm going to say Kierkegaard.
4: When a a bunch of five-year-olds were asked, what is happiness? And one of them replied, happiness is falling asleep in the glower of an animal, waking up in the gaze of a beast That is wonder shows in.
1: Damn it. Wow. They really said that.
4: This next one's uh, one of my favorites. Listen to the cry of a woman in labor at the hour of giving birth. Look at the dying man's struggle at his last extremity.
1: Mm, Kierkegaard.
4: That's right. You got that.
1: Yes. Okay. All right. Okay.
4: Only a couple more. When the revolution comes, where will you hide?
1: I'm going to say wonder shows
4: That's right. That's right. Kids were interviewing people um, on Wall Street and asking, when the revolution comes, where will you hide? <laughs> All right. Last one here. Only as booty can she be his. He cannot give himself faithfully to any girl because he is indeed only a merman.
1: Um, I'm going to say uh, Kierkegaard had like girl issues, right?
4: And merman issues.
1: Yeah. So it's Kierkegaard. That's right.
4: That's right. Yes.
1: Yeah. So... I guess the question is, like, Caroline, are you just, like, a messed up person for thinking this stuff is funny? Or what does this show do that actually accesses something that is humorous? Because there is also, like, a gut punch to every joke.
4: In the article, what I'm trying to get at is that what they're touching on are really dark themes, then they make them funny, which I think there's a connection there with sadness and the human condition. Something that came to mind was... I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of years ago who's a therapist, and I was like, hey, Mike, this is so funny. My dad's been married five times. All my stepmoms are from a different country. Don't you think there's something there? Isn't that, like, hilarious? And he was like, no, it's not funny. It's sad, you know, and that kind of took me aback a little bit. I think there's a lot of just sadness in things that I find mm-hmm. funny or things that are darkly funny.
1: Yeah, we kind of joked that, like, okay, we're Mockingbird and, like, everything always has this like dark turn and that surely enough, like the humor issue will have plenty of like, you know, despite the fact that it's called that we're going to talk about addiction and death and despair, even in the humor issue. And lo and behold, you know, like we found all the writers probably in America who can say that yes, like humor is inextricable from sadness or from pain. If you want to be funny, Uh, You have to go where the pain is. I don't want to give yours away, but yeah, you do this really, I mean, this really beautiful job of interweaving this TV show that seems pretty funny and depressing. And then also talking about your life and how there's this period in your life where both one of the most joyous occasions of your life is taking place right alongside the most difficult
4: yeah. So in 2016, like the worst thing that's really ever happened to me in my life, uh, was my mom passed away very suddenly from cancer. We were very close. She was, you know, my best friend. It was absolutely like my whole world came crashing down. When I'm talking about an article, it's not that I was finding comfort in the humor, but there's definitely like an appreciation of dark humor when you're down that pit. I guess ironic thing was that I, we were, my mom and I were planning my wedding together that year and she passed away. And three weeks later, we had the event, <laughs> we had the wedding and it was sort of like fully traumatized as I hosted like her book club and <laughs> everyone else. But there was just this moment of, I don't know, I guess reprieve as I came across like how awful everything was that was actually happening. For example, when you get married, you have to get a wedding dress and you end up caving and buying a wedding dress that you really cannot afford and then you have to like get it tailored like 18 times and you have to keep going back to the tailor for fittings after i lost my mom i had to go to the tailor to get my stupid wedding dress they were like you know oh here's the bride you know like just a couple weeks to go and i was like just give me the dress i hate everything they're like here's your dress and here's like a goodie bag. goodie for you know as you get ready for the big day which contained you know a little piece of dove chocolate cuz you're probably dieting and you know a stress ball cuz you know brides are so stressed out <laughs> and like this woman handed me my wedding dress and like this dinky little red stress ball and i was like this this is uh this is funny i guess <laughs> these moments along the way only got worse from there in the grieving process and i had to you know, move out of a house to go through all of our family's belongings and move out of the house over a period of a year. And my brother kept saying, it's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Like everything's under control. And then I, you know, would walk into the house and there would be like a dead sparrow just in the middle of like the living room. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like cause everything's not okay. It can be, yeah. it can be darkly funny. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's everything's not under control.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's trite now to talk about sort of like, you know, laugh or you'll cry, you know, and there's certainly moments like that. And I think a lot of times people would explain laughter in mm. grief, like an escape hatch or something. But the way you describe it, it's almost as if humor is and this is true of wonder shows and true of this time of your life with your mom dying and getting married. Life is absurd. Every now and then you sort of get this insight that what you're going through right now, what you're experiencing in life is showing you that this is all just really confusing. It doesn't make sense and things don't line up the way they're supposed to. And the story that I wrote isn't fulfilling itself the way I thought it would.
4: Absolutely. Also, you can be kind of too crass and not funny, but I I kind of think after going through all of this, for me nothing's really untouchable like there's nothing that's really over the line, especially in light of the gospel. So I always remember Jacob Smith, I think he was preaching on Father's Day, and he was talking about Romans 5, about being able to boast in sadness and grief because of Jesus. It was Father's Day, and he was saying, you know, you may not have a great dad, or you might not be a great dad yourself, which is sort of an awful thing to contemplate. But in light of the fact that Jesus has risen, we should just be celebrating, because it's already been paid for. And that I just think it's difficult to comprehend day to day, but it's continuously powerful. Praise is
0: church is a ridiculous idea. It's a beautiful, holy thing. And it's also a hilarious thing. Like we have built a building. It has plumbing and it has wires in it and has lighting and uh, some sound system. And we're going to get together and we're going to sing hymns or sing worship songs. And we're going to have feelings. And in some way, we're going to believe that we are going to connect with the intelligence that made everything which we could never, ever, ever, ever comprehend. And every word we utter about that being will be in some way blasphemous because it's a limitation of something that is beyond our comprehension. I noticed a funny moment in the uh, gospel reading this past Sunday. We had John's uh, telling of the resurrection. And if you noticed, did you guys ever notice this? You know, Jesus obviously unwraps all of the linen wrappings like john is very specific to say that when peter and mary look into the tomb they see all the wrappings they're folded up the head cloth is like rolled up by itself very john's very specific about this and then mary sees jesus and he's dressed like a gardener where did he get the gardener outfit
2: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info@mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.